0: I am delighted to be here and talk with you about my journey as both well an early learning teacher working with neurodiverse students and as a mother of a neurodiverse child. When I was working as an early learning mentor teacher in San Francisco, I had my first experience with a neurodiverse student. I'll call him Kellen. What I remember most about them were their beautiful bright eyes and big smile. Kellen was like most preschool age kids, but with an extreme edge, everything times two. Emotions, tantrums, likes and dislikes. Kellen had arrived at our school hmm, around ten months uh, before entering kindergarten. Their mother explained that Kellen, you know, was just four years old and had already been expelled from nine other childcare and preschool programs prior to arriving at our door. I was shocked to hear that Kellen's extremes were too much for previous places. I worried how all that inconsistency impacted his ability to feel safe and to bond and trust others. I made a vow to Kellen and to Kellen's family during our first meeting that day um, that they had found a safe space in our classroom and that our community of learners would provide loving support for them Kellen's mother's eyes filled with tears when she heard this. It was a big relief for her. And it was a huge year of challenges and learning for Kellen's family, our classroom staff, and for our early learning community. I definitely was naive about the journey that I was about to enter. And there were many days that I cried on my way home from work. True talk. I cried out of frustration for wanting to do more for the family. And what I didn't know at the time was that the universe was preparing me for the arrival of my own very neurodiverse son who came into my life 10 years later.
1: Hey friends, welcome to the all new version of NAPCAST, a podcast co-hosted and produced by Nick and Mike, two male early childhood educators of color. What is this all about? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever uttered the words, I just want to listen and learn more? Then hey, you've come to the right place. This podcast is all about taking risks, leaning into your imagination, and well, being as curious as we are about how we can dismantle racism, sexism, and all the ism in our early learning environments. Oh, and this is also a place where we can kinda sorta just get weird with it. Together, we'll listen to insights and feedback from various educators of color working with our world's youngest citizen in direct and indirect ways. Oh, just a thought of that shit sends chills down your spine. So, Are you ready? Did you turn your headphones up? All right now. Good. Let's get it. Welcome to Napcast, a podcast produced by two male educators of color. Uh, Nick, I I always go first. How about you go first?
2: I was making sure I was off mute. (laughs) Yeah, well, welcome, uh, everybody. Suzette, it's great to have you on. My name is Nick Tronas. Pronouns are he, him. And I'm coming to you all from the same place I've been coming to you all, the traditional lands of the Duwamish tribe, now known as Seattle, named after the great chief. Seattle.
1: And my name is Mike Brown. My pronouns are he, him, and I am uh, about 3,000 miles away down the I-5, the 101, the 100, the the 1. There's so many different highways
2: here. Mike, I found out out it's actually only 1,200 miles away. 1,200 miles, all right. Yeah, it just feels like three.
1: (laughs) Each time we go, we do this, right? It just gets yeah.
2: Longer. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like you're halfway around the world
1: <laughs> and I'm broadcasting off the traditional lands of the Kameya tribe the first people of what is now known as San Diego California and I am hyped uh, uh to be able to be here in community once again with the I don't I need to find a better word than notorious, right? I'm just always blasting (laughs) like V-I-G. But in no way is she notorious. She is phenomenal. She's amazing. She is a blessing in our world. Suzette, welcome to NAPCAST.
0: Thank you, Mike, for that introduction. And thank you, Nick. Um, I'm also joining you from uh, the um, indigenous lands of the Coast Salish folks here in Seattle. And um, my preferred pronouns are she/her/they. I identify as an urban indigenous Chicana Texican with ancestral roots in Aztlán um, and the northeast states of Mexico. Uh, I'm a former preschool teacher, a longtime civil servant, and I've spent about mm, roughly two decades speaking truth to power in my role as an early learning program and. Policy Specialist and Legislative Coordinator with the City of Seattle in the Department of Education and Early Learning. Um, But all that said, the thing that I am most most proud of is being a mom of two amazing uh, human beings in this world and an auntie and mentor to many in my community.
1: You know, as I sit here and I think about all the children that went through our programs and classrooms, I try not to think of how much it is because that ages us. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But do you do you remember? Or do you have a, a ballpark of how many children lives you impacted over the years?
0: Oh my gosh, you would have to go there. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I just realized um, this morning as I was you know watching something. And it's been um, over almost 25 years since I graduated college at San Francisco State University. So that was a time when I was um, also teaching preschool um, full time um, in the late 90s. And it hit me that um, a lot of my beloved preschoolers are now um, grown adults and having families of their own. <laughs> so. Um, No, I think, you know, each year, class of 20 kids, you know, working with 200 plus, 250 plus childcare centers, serving over 3,000 students in the city of Seattle, I I, I, I guess I've impacted a lot of lives with um, both the direct instruction and supporting teachers with their direct instruction. so yeah, I guess my impact is great. I just haven't really thought about it in numbers. Now you're going to force me to go back and do some math <laughs> later today.
1: <laughs> uh, let's just say that between all three of us, we could populate a small country. How about that?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I feel like, you know, children, working with, working with children, working with youth keeps you youthful. Um, I definitely have a youthful spirit. I don't feel a day over 26 years old <laughs> and you know i'm i'm halfway through my 100 years of life on this planet so um you know i definitely um agree that that it's about it's about uh how you feel in the work and it's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing to to sit with you all and to um to be able to reflect back on you know the thirty-plus years that I've been doing this work, and um, and not look a, a day over thirty myself.
1: <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. Black and brown don't crack. <laughs> right.
0: <Yeah.
1: laughs> you know, I, speaking of reflections, I, I thought back to like one of our first times that we met, and. Uh, you were talking about like neurodiversity and then a few years went by and then um, we started this napcast and then you reached out and you were like, Oh, I would love to come on and talk about neurodiversity. And I paused and it gave me some anxiety because I was like, Oh, I don't really know anything about this subject. And I I definitely don't know how to approach any of these questions that I wanted to ask you today. But as I started to, you know, go to the, to the, The almighty Google, right? And started doing my research. I was actually surprised and seeing, oh, actually, I know, I know a little bit more than I thought I gave myself credit for. And I think it was hard for me to, to recognize um, my knowledge in the subject because of two things. The first thing is stigmas, right? We often don't want to talk about neurodiversity, right? Ableism. Um, And neurodiversity really encompasses a a broad range of behavioral traits, Um, but it's often just linked to mental health and in a really Western patriarchal capitalist society, that's often dismissed. And the second thing that really came to mind um, was just something that we talked about, Nick and I talked about back in episode 30, the saboteurs, and that was just about imposter syndrome. And so my first question, my my question is always long-winded, right? I, I see Nick rolling his eyes, JK. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, my first question is, is with the latter, right? This imposter syndrome. Because I'm speculating that there is some correlation, or at least a line that we can draw between imposter syndrome and neurodiversity. And that line that I'm trying to draw is how sometimes... I'm sitting there and I'm looking at people, and I'm like, You know, how do you have your life together and I don't, and I can only assume that's how people who are neurodiverse right they might have that feeling when they're when they're in the classroom when they're in the world, or they're experiencing things, mm-hmm. yeah, you
0: know Mike thanks um... So much. I appreciate your honesty, and you know that I definitely would agree with you somewhat about that imposter syndrome. Um, and and in my opinion, you know that, apost- that imposter syndrome is is tied a lot to social stigma. And neurodiversity is often labeled in our society as this invisible disability. Um, the term itself encompasses many behaviors and differing ways of You know, humans assimilate information in in, in how our brains work, right? It's it's frequently associated with with folks with ADHD, dyslexia, anxiety, um, and folks on the autism spectrum. Many um, neurodiverse folks may appear to be neurotypical, and the rest of the world makes assumptions about how they should function by following an invisible set of you know societal norms right so that speaks to you know you're saying like how is it that you have your life together and i don't you know um this idea that there's a certain way to live life um and anything else that doesn't fit into that nice neat little box is othered right that's that's you're not doing This what's expected. Um, I found that especially with neurodiverse folk like my son, life is experienced from a very like literal perspective. Um, Subtle verbal cues, body language, and especially like sarcasm really don't automatically mean anything to them. Um, Others may experience the world, um, others with neurodiversity may experience the world as like. Is constant assault on their senses, right? Um, certain textures, smell, sounds, feelings of of constant hyper arousal um, seem to be like coming from out of nowhere and attacking them. And so their um, behavior is to like either protect themselves from that onslaught of noise or that, that certain you know scent that they smell when they walk into a room, or or to to lash out, right? Um, to remove whatever it is that's or try to remove whatever it is that's causing um, this this hyper arousal for them. Um, and and at the same time, when you think about like that sense of 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 belonging, you know, when you, when you're in a Dealing with this normative sort of community, like we're, we have to be a certain way, look a certain way, um, act a certain way in order to be accepted in society, it does cause these these feelings of um, of not you know not fitting in. This, these feelings of not of of um, not being enough. Right. Instead of really leaning in on celebrating um, diversity, not just from the cultural language, sort of, you know, differences of of everybody globally diversity, but really celebrating diversity of thought, diversity of of being in the world, you know, diversity of how we um, assimilate information and really embracing all of that as as we create, you know, our beloved, what Dr. King called the beloved community, right? The beloved community includes folks who are neurodiverse.
1: You know, when you said about um, invisible, cause I use, I, I use that term a lot, I say children with invisible and visible disabilities. And so what are some of the things in the environments that you think can um, trigger or, or make, this, make the environment uncomfortable for those with invisible
0: disabilities? That's a good question. Um, so the things that that kids can make you know, more comfortable, right? So for example, I'm just thinking about um, a classroom, right? When you are creating a welcoming classroom, a lot of times we want to go to you know, putting up pictures of, of families um, in the classroom that are um, fam- that are diverse, we have a diverse classroom. We're putting up these these symbols and these images of things from around the world, and, and for kids that are neurodiverse, it's making um, things that typically they only get to um, be in community with when they're in a therapeutic session, right? With the uh, um, when they're when they're doing their their speech therapies or when they might be getting therapy for um, helping them to um, to become more resilient around resilient around things that they fear or those comfort comfort things right so making sure that you, those are always available for everybody you know and and normalizing them not making it strange that you know some kids need to have a little quiet corner to kind of get away from the onslaught of all of the stimulation that's happening, all of the sensory um, things that are, you know, coming in, all of the sensory information that's coming in. They might just need like a quiet little cozy corner where they can be with low light and some soft pillows or some, you know, little teddy bears and things like that. Um, And having that available for every child, you know, uh, that's just one small example of ways that you could make an environment more welcoming for um, a neurodiverse child.
2: There's there was one time in um, in my old classroom, uh, I thought it was a great idea to have uh, Mike, maybe you remember these things. It's like uh, mylar. So like really thin, um, shiny, plasticky kind of uh, material. And I had it uh, above or taped up to the ceiling vent. And so when the wind would blow or when the air would come through, it would kind of make these little shimmery things move around. And um, I didn't pick up on the fact that it made like, you know, a little bit of a rustling noise. And when we had a child uh, who uh, has, uh, neuro, was not neurodiverse, they would like, like look up at the... Um, at these little string things, and and cover their ears and become in this heightened state. And, and now it took me a while to like figure out what is going on. And are they? And and it was that the the uh, the mylar was annoying to them, and and it was overstimulating to their auditory system. And so my point being is sometimes in the environment, it's not about it. it it's also about taking things out of the environment and as well as including things into the environment. And so we, we took all of those things down and then that just helped the child so much more. And, you know, there was a part of me where it was like, Oh, you know, they can, um, they, 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 they'll get, they'll get over it. They'll get used to it. They'll acclimate to it. And then, um, but after, after good discussion with people, those like, no, 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 maybe that's perception needs to be about me. I should get over the fact that, um, that I have this expectation for kids to adapt to the environment, but the, ad- the environment needs to adapt to them to better reflect their identity. Right. And that is something that um, that Mike and I uh, have considered that neurodiversity is an identity. And often when we discuss identities that humans have, uh, Mike and I will sort of think of you know, looking in the long term. Um, how, what are the adverse effects when we minimize to fail, uh, fail to understand, refuse to uh, identify the very diverse physical and mental, emotional and spiritual ways of living and breathing and act, interacting in the world? And you touched on it, Suzette, that um, you know our, uh, our society try, uh, has has this tendency to put people in a box. So my question is. What are some pervasive narratives that you've heard pathologized around neurodiverse people and some of the ramifications you've, you've seen when we stigmatize this identity?
0: Well, from, from that, from a societal normative and neurotypical perspective, you know, um, neurodiverse folk are strange, right? They're quirky, they're just different. And Frequently, what gets highlighted are these differences. Yet, you know, those differences don't have to be looked at as weakness or as um, um, something to to be afraid of. Um, They're not problems that need to be fixed or cured, right? They're just simply variations of the human brain. So being neurodivergent, you know, can help shape identity and how people see themselves and their value in the world. And neurodivergent people often experience, interact with, and interpret the world in very unique ways. And that can sometimes create challenges, right? It creates challenges for um, when you're in the classroom, it can create a challenge for you as a classroom teacher. It can create challenges for the learning community. But it can also really lead to some great creative problem solving and some really new ideas, You know, things that really benefit everybody. Um, and some of our most famous inventors have been um, neurodiverse humans, right? There's, there's examples of lots of creative and new gadgets, or even just things that we use every day that we don't even really think about that were created by folks who had this neurodivergent way of thinking about and living in the world. And so they create a solution that works best for them, which other folks may have not thought about, but then in the end ends up being something that's, you know, serves everybody in, in the same way. Um, and so I think that's that's one of the, the beauties of, you um, you know, really supporting and leaning in on, you know recognizing like you recognize that that child at the in the classroom was having a reaction to the smile art balloon. and you came up with this solution for that, right? and and the solution is is to support that child so that that child can be comfortable enough to really lean in on the areas where they're shy right? To really mm-hmm. lean on some of the ways that they, contribute positively to the community um, because that that thing was was you know a barrier to them right And when we think about about it that way, oftentimes our society says, oh well why am I gonna just do remove these mylar balloons that everybody else likes so that one person can be comfortable right yeah. and what we don't realize is that in making space for their comfort, we're also creating uh, a space for everyone to thrive, right?
2: right? And um, so that's that's what I, you know. And think. yeah, and with that last little bit that you just mentioned, um, that we're we're modeling to the children too. That like, hey, this ch- you know, this person has a particular need, and it's okay for us to change up the environment and and meet this person's need. Um, even if we can't see like. Uh, and the other children, and and I feel like young children, um, they don't care generally. You know, they're just like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but you know, as we accumulate experience and uh, different like uh, a, a baggage, if you will, as adults, then we, I think, we become entrenched in our own practices and our own feelings. And I do think that the way our school system is generally set up is to encourage people to quote-unquote get over it, right? And so it doesn't meet the needs of neurodivergent children.
0: We'll
1: be right back. These last few months have brought upon a lot of changes in Nick's and Mike's lives. New cities, new jobs, new adventures, us going independent, Shout out to all the peeps who supported us along the way. And now we have a new email address. You can email us at napcast206 at gmail.com for all your Napcast questions, ideas, and thoughts. And while our new website isn't quite up and running yet, you can still find us where you listen to all your music and podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, Google, and so much more. So what should we chat about next? You tell us. And as always, thank you for listening. You know, I'm I'm sure someone's going to tell me to stick to early child education when I bring up this analogy, just like people are like, stick to sports. Um, <laughs> but with vaccines, right, you inject because that's all we're talking about these days. Um, with vaccines, you inject part of the virus into your body, right? The inactive part of the virus, so that your body can create the pathogens needed to fight it off in case you actually get the active part. And so I kind of see early childhood education as the vaccine to a larger complex societal problems, right? ECE is where we as social justice uh, educators are really working to help and support children in seeing what a fair, what a just, what an equitable world could look like so that when they leave our care, when they go out into the world, they can really work to Engage in this transformative change, right? They can really work to solve these larger structural and societal um, issues, right? They can work towards the humanity of, of it all. And as we co-construct this vaccine in early child education, neurodiversity isn't always part of that formula, which is just a really a long way of me saying that children with disabilities are always an afterthought right? They're, they're add-on to the conversation and they're never really the foundation from which we just operate in. So can you highlight for us the various ways that children with disabilities have and are currently still contributing to this fair and this just and this equitable world that we want and not in the ways in which we want them to play and to act, to perform, but in ways in which they're just being their true, authentic, and amazing selves.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, you know, it's that's what we want, right? We want everyone to be able to live in a in a way that they can be their true, authentic, and amazing selves. And 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 there's a lot of truth in what you say about about how we tend to sort of tag things, the the what we do for for students, with um, within the our abled framework, right? So we we have this way of, of creating parameters in our world and wanting to um, take our students, especially, you know, again, going back to neurodivergent students um, and p- placing them in, you know, special education. And I'm not to knock special education. It has, it definitely has its place. Um, and and we want to you know we have been working since the 70s to try and integrate our schools right because before the 70s um, and before the um, the IDEA Act there there wasn't there was there wasn't really public schools weren't seeing a whole lot of students with differing abilities right they were often placed in institutions unfortunately or in special schools away from um, from abled, quote-unquote, able-bodied um, children. And so in this attempt to really push for um, integration and, um, and to create you know, some, some diversity in our school system, the IDEA Act came out and, and looked at it as a way of having some rules saying that, yes, able, disabled children need to be part of a school community, and how do we do that? Um, Unfortunately, we brought them, we brought children into the the school building, but we're still in some ways, keeping them out of or away from uh, typically, neurotypically the um, developing students in that we will put them in a special education classroom or we'll put them in a a classroom that's um, a self-contained classroom Um, because I said that that's a a way, a better way of meeting, you know, the child's needs versus bringing the child into the classroom um, in the community, having them be a part of the community and not be othered, Um, bringing the child in the classroom with a support person in the classroom, you know, could be a better fix instead of having them um, spend their day away from the rest of the classrooms and and rarely Having opportunities for, for interacting with their neurotypical peers, you know, um, or what they call able bodied peers. And what, what I think um, we could do, you know, again, to just highlight and make it equitable and is to look at universal design, right? Universal design tells us so much about how when we are doing things for one group of people, we are designing things for one group of people who might need some additional supports. We're making life easier for everyone. Um, just thinking about like going, let's go to architecture for just a second, right? And and every, we take for granted now that we have these doors that slide open and close with a sensor, right? Um, and those doors make it convenient for everybody to be able to walk in and out the door without having to touch the door, especially now in the time of, you know, um, what you were talking about earlier about the vaccines, right? As you're entering and exiting buildings, some people are creeped out these days to have to touch a door handle. Um, and so you have this opportunity to go in and out of a building with these, you know, amazing sliding doors that noticed when you're coming and they open and they they notice when you've walked away and they close um, that's a, a an example or a small example of universal design and the reason why that those doors came came to be is because folks in wheelchairs um were or, or folks that folks that, that couldn't open a door you know were having a hard time getting in and out of buildings with with ease because the doors you know opened in a way that that made it difficult for them to go in and out. And so when we lean into this concept of universal design where and we bring it to sort of the from the, the macro level to like the micro level of the classroom, we start thinking about ways that we can create spaces and um, and curriculums even that are um, speaking to all children. And, and really lean in on, you know, teaching the whole child. In early learning, we talk a lot about teaching, you know, teaching the whole child. And we say that, and at the same time, we create systems that um, are, and policies that really push educators to lean in on specific parts of our uh, of our education curriculum, really focus in on those kindergarten readiness um, ideals and and don't put as much emphasis on the whole child and whole child learning. Um, and so that's you know, that's just a way to create some of that equitable uh, um, equity in the classroom. And to make it fair and to make it just is really focusing in on how we can hone what we've learned from, from things like universal design and, to, and bring it into our own classrooms.
1: And I think the, the, the most important thing that I wanna emphasize there, not the most important thing, the thing that I wanna emphasize, right? Um, is that you don't need to do this in, in response to having a child with disabilities in your classroom. Right? Uh, Like I, we gave a talk the other day, Nick and I, to a group in Texas, and I'm saying, just because you don't have a Black child in your environment doesn't mean that you can't teach about anti-Blackness, doesn't mean you can't teach about BIPOC uh, uh, brilliance. And so you don't need to wait until you have a child with disabilities in your class to apply universal design principles to it. You can just, that can just be the foundation.
2: And Yeah. And, you know, I was even thinking as you're saying that, Mike, that is probably the best time to bring up those things. Right. Um, When if you don't have that representation physically in the classroom, then I I feel like it's up to the educator to to highlight that. Right. That is one of those sort of sort of social justice provocations. Um, And sticking with that lens of equity, uh, you know, educators, therapists, school districts it's so much more all over the gamut of uh, education, you know, all too often are imperious to the unique and individual needs of neurodiverse black and Brown males. And it's interesting when, um, Mike, I think you and I had talked about this, there's that comedian Michael Che and he was, you know, he was saying that like growing up in, uh, in, I think he grew up in Brooklyn and uh, but he was, saying that you know we're we're just now starting to uh be diagnosed and he's a black comedian and so you know whereas before they would say oh that kid he he's just crazy you know but now they actually have diagnoses and and of course he's approaching this through a lens of comedy as most communities of color do because these traumas and these stigmatizations and these um adverse of, and lack of care in our communities You know, we need to release the pressure somehow. But the point that he's making is like, oh, now we're just finding out that, oh, maybe that person who had these tendencies, these neurodiverse ways of being has an actual uh, diagnosis. And so there would be a sort of methodology or way to approach this person in a way that's fair to them. And, you know, we can't see, I I often, Mike and I have often reflected that society doesn't see children of color with disabilities because we're looking at them through a lens of ableism and again when we consider the fact that brown and black folk just in general have been shorted on health care we see this unjust level of expectation to fit in and when that doesn't meet the dominant narrative we see the ramifications in Higher expulsion rates and sus, uh, suspension rates and you know ultimately in police brutality and another lens that I've been kind of looking at through neurodiversity are uh, a couple of things is one, what is the evolutionary need or function for us as a species to have individuals um, uh, with neurodiverse traits and two are these neurodiversity simply more learning styles that we have yet to understand and that do serve a purpose in our world and to our societies? And three, you know, how does the expectation to fit into a white narrative contribute to this without regarding generational trauma and the other ways of thinking and being? Um, and so my question would be, what changes do we need to make as educators and and the field in general to make neurodiversity more of the norm and not just an add-on.
0: Wow, well, Nick, there's there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I know. Consider, <laughs> lots to unpack and consider with that question, and and I'm glad that you you know you brought it up because this is something that I think about as the mother of um, a neurodiverse. Uh, Human um, that I think about a lot. Um, so we we had challenges and, and with preschool, we we navigated um, uh, the systems right with um, elementary schools and um, and childcare early learning places. Um, we'd been asked to leave a private kindergarten, <laughs> and um, and I was actually thankful. I was thankful. At first, I wasn't so happy about it, <laughs> as you can imagine. But I was actually grateful um, when I look back because that environment would not have been uh, an environment for my son to thrive in. You know, um, it was a lot. It was a lot for him. And so, you know, looking for and finding um, a good fit for him for kindergarten was really important. And when I realized that the public school system um, wasn't meeting his needs, you know, being an advocate, learning how to be an advocate for him, um, to um, to stand up for and ask for what I needed, and leaning in on my community of supporters. Um, because even though I have an early learning background myself, and I consider myself an educator, when you're on the other side of the table as a parent, and you are literally sitting in uh, with a, you know panel of, of professionals um, and you you have to advocate for your child's needs, it's very intimidating. And um, I was really, really fortunate that I had folks like Dr. Sharon Knight that I could um, lean on for that support um, to be there at that meeting to help be another set of eyes and ears um, with me. Um, and even just moral support, um, someone that I could debrief with after that meeting because it's, it's, it can be very challenging and very intimidating um, to, to um, ask for, for accommodations, to ask for folks to, to think about what is within their parameters of their policies, you know, what are some decisions that they can make at the, the school level, at the classroom level? that they don't have to go out to a district level to, to get permission to do right and sometimes it's it's asking for things that people didn't even think they could they could do asking for accommodations and changes that they didn't had never even thought of themselves. Um, and so uh hold on. <laughs> my cat okay so I'll just gonna be transparent I have a cat here <laughs> decided that she wants to attack my hands as I speak because um, I see my hands
2: a lot. It's just telling you, you're not giving me attention.
0: Right.
2: <laughs> that's what my that's what my cat does all the time.
0: Sorry for that quick distraction, but um, you know, just going back to, to what I was saying, like it when we think about especially our black and brown boys, right? Um and and our black and brown girls, we, we tend to, you know, they they tend to get placed in special education or expelled from programs um, because they don't have the, um, don't have the, the right environment to support mm-hmm. them because you have adults who are making decisions about a community of learners who doesn't include them, right? In that decision-making. And a lot of times what they don't, they're, they're so distracted by, um, we get so distracted and I'll just go back again to my story about Kellen. You know, we get so distracted by the, the things that are not working with that child that we don't see the places where that child shines, that we don't see the brilliance that um, they bring into the classroom. And sometimes it could be as simple as, you know, going back to what Nick said, removing a, a mylar, some mylar, you know, paper from a room for that child to feel comfortable enough to then show you where they shine, right? And then supporting them by giving them activities and opportunities to have that brilliance.
1: You just listened to part one of What is Normal Anyways? A conversation with our friend and colleague, Suzanne. In the moments before you listen to part two, we want you to take some time out to reflect. When a child's decisions and reactions doesn't align with your expectations, what is your gut reaction? Now that we have chatted about the concepts of neurodiversity, how does that repeatedly tapping of their foot, their refusal to participate, change how you would react? What are your assumptions that you make about your colleagues who behave or process differently in your environment? And finally, what are specific actions that you can take in your life to be more inclusive for neurodivergent people?